Today is Wednesday, October the 18th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The Federal Communications Commission, that's the FCC, says Comcast, Spectrum, AT&T must start displaying nutrition label. The FCC says Comcast, Spectrum, AT&T must start displaying the true course and speed of their internet service starting April 2024. The Federal Communications Commission has set a date for broadband providers to start displaying broadband consumer labels that break down the price of their services. A majority of providers will be required to display the label by April 10, 2024. Providers with 100,000 or fewer subscriber lines have an October 10, 2024 deadline. The FCC goal with the nutrition label style disclosure is to provide customers with clear, easy to understand, and accurate information about a provider's internet prices, introductory rates, data allowances, and broadband speeds. The labels will also include links to learn about network management practices, privacy policies, and the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program. Paying for internet access can get complicated quickly between promotions and technical jargon. These labels aim to hold providers accountable to customers and expose fine print about data caps or hidden charges that otherwise would have been overlooked. This is a big win for consumers who need clear and transparent information when making decisions about what internet services make the most sense for their households. FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenwarsel said in a statement, Consumers will finally get information they can use to comparison shop, avoid junk fees, and make informed choices about which high-speed internet service is the best fit for their needs and budget. The FCC adopted the label rules in 2022. After the order was adopted, multiple petitions were filed asking for clarification and reconsideration. In August, cable and telecom companies pushed back on the FCC's order to include the disclosure 
arguing that the labels would only confuse customers and provide an onerous amount of additional work given the different tiers of pricing. Shortly after, the FCC said it would not reconsider the broadband consumer label rules. In a release at that time, the FCC said the action preserved a consumer's access to transparent and accurate information about broadband services. The Federal Communications Commission to reintroduce rules protecting net neutrality. The U.S. government aims to restore sweeping regulations for high-speed internet providers such as AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, reviving net neutrality rules for broadband industry and an ongoing debate about the Internet's future. The proposed rules from the Federal Communications Commission will designate Internet service, both the wired kind found in homes and businesses, as well as mobile data on cell phones, as essential telecommunications, akin to traditional telephone services. The rules would ban Internet service providers from blocking or slowing down access to websites and online content. In addition to the prohibitions on blocking and throttling internet traffic, the draft rules also seek to prevent ISPs from selectively speeding up service to favored websites or to those that agree to pay extra fees. FCC rules are to design to prevent the emergence of fast lanes on the web that could give some websites a paid advantage over others. With this proposal, the FCC aims to restore Obama-era regulations that the FCC under Republican leadership rolled back during the Trump administration. But the proposal is likely to trigger strong pushback from Internet providers who have spent years fighting earlier versions of the rules in court. Net neutrality rules were initially implemented in 2015 under the Obama administration. These rules classified broadband Internet as a utility and prohibited Internet service providers, that's the ISPs, from blocking or throttling Internet traffic, as well as from engaging in paid prioritization, which would allow certain websites or services to receive faster or preferential treatment. However, in 2017, the FCC, under the leadership of Chairman Ajit Pai, repealed these net neutrality rules, This decision sparked significant debate and controversy with proponents of net neutrality arguing that it was necessary to ensure a level playing field for all Internet users, while opponents claim that the regulations stifle innovation and investment in broadband infrastructure. Under the current FCC, there is a renewed effort to reinstate net neutrality rules. It is to restore nationwide net neutrality rules which would allow the FCC to protect Internet openness and prevent ISPs from engaging in discriminatory practices. The reintroduction of net neutrality rules would provide regulatory oversight to ensure that ISPs treat all Internet traffic equally without blocking, throttling, or prioritizing certain content. This is seen as a way to maintain a free, open Internet where users have equal access to information and services. The proposal to reintroduce net neutrality rules have received both support and opposition. 
Supporters argue that net neutrality is crucial for preserving a fair and competitive online environment, protecting consumer rights, and promoting innovation. They believe that without net neutrality, ISPs could potentially control access to certain websites or services, favoring their own content, or charging additional fees for faster access. Opponents, on the other hand, argue that net neutrality regulations are unnecessary and burdensome, and they hinder ISPs' ability to invest in and improve broadband infrastructure. They contend that market competition and consumer choice should dictate how ISPs manage their networks. The reintroduction of net neutrality rules by the FCC could have significant implications for the future of internet regulation and the digital landscape. It remains to be seen how the proposal will progress and what the final outcome will be. The reason given for dropping net neutrality in 2017 was to promote innovation and investment in broadband infrastructure. Supporters of the repeal argue that regulations imposed by net neutrality stifle the growth of ISPs and hinder their ability to expand and improve their network. They believe that market competition and consumer choice would be sufficient to ensure fair and open internet access. However, it's important to note that this decision was controversial and there were differing opinions on the potential impact of repealing net neutrality rules. Without net neutrality, ISPs can potentially offer different tiers of service with varying speeds and features. This allows users to choose plans that align with their specific needs and budgets. Proponents argue that this flexibility can lead to more tailored and affordable options for consumers. Potential for zero rating and sponsored data. Some argue that without net neutrality, ISPs can engage in practices such as zero rating where certain content or services do not count towards a user's data cap or sponsored data where companies pay for their content to be exempt from data charges. Supporters claim that these practices can benefit consumers by providing free or discounted access to specific content or services. Net neutrality protects the principle of freedom of speech on social media platforms. ISPs cannot block or throttle access to specific social media services based on their content or viewpoint, ensuring that users have the ability to express themselves freely and access diverse opinions and information. Net neutrality regulations may limit ISPs' ability to manage network traffic efficiently. ISPs may not be able to prioritize critical services or ensure quality of service for time-sensitive applications, potentially leading to congestion and degraded performance on social media platforms. Net neutrality regulations may limit ISPs' ability to generate revenue from partnerships or agreements with social media platforms. This could potentially result in increased costs for ISPs, which may be passed on to consumers through higher internet service fees. Net neutrality is a principle that ensures all internet traffic is treated equally, without discrimination or preference given to certain types of content or services. It primarily focuses on the relationship between internet service providers, that's ISPs, and their customers. The concept of net neutrality does not directly apply to social media platforms or social services media. 
Net neutrality regulations typically address issues such as blocking or throttling certain websites or services, prioritizing certain types of traffic, or charging extra fees for faster access to certain content. These regulations aim to maintain an open and level playing field for all Internet users. Social media platforms, on the other hand, are private entities that provide online platforms for users to interact, share content, and communicate with others. They have their own terms of service and content moderation policies, which may involve removing or restricting certain types of content based on their own guidelines. Best Buy plans to rid itself of all DVDs. Last week, Best Buy confirmed that it would stop selling all DVDs and Blu-rays starting in the new year. Best Buy says it was ending all in-store and online purchases of DVDs sometime in the new year after this holiday season for all 1,129 Best Buy stores, including the 969 in the United States. It's unclear if Blu-rays will also be removed at the same time. In a statement to Variety, a Best Buy spokesperson said, To state the obvious, the way we watch movies and TV shows is much different today than it was a decade ago. Best Buy's move away from the physical media arrives just more than a month after Netflix sent its last DVDs out to its few lingering physical rental customers. The streaming company declared it was putting an end to DVD rentals back in April. The Best Buy spokesperson said its stores will continue to stock physical game discs, so despite the proliferation of video game downloads and streaming, Best Buy seems to think there's still a large enough market for physical game media. In another sense, the electronics chain seems intent on promoting more physical hardware in its stores. Making this change gives us more space and opportunity to bring customers new and innovative tech for them to explore, the spokesperson said. Best Buy itself is trying to scale back on its sales expectations for later this year. After sharing its most recent quarterly earnings report in August, the company's CEO, Corey Barry, told investors this year will be the low point in tech demand, but expects next year's sales to bounce back. The company's top brass made no mention of DVD sales, but if it's expecting more people to be shopping tech in the new year, it may also be trying to make space. It's true that DVD sales continue to dip year after year. According to data from Digital Entertainment Group, physical media sales were down close to 30% in the first half of 2023 compared to the same time last year. Subscription streaming is up although those companies, including Netflix and Disney, are planning to raise streaming prices. Simply put, even though there's still growth in streaming, these companies aren't seeing the same blockbuster growth they had in prior years. Superstores like Walmart and Target continue to sell physical media in stores, and Amazon continues to stock them online. There are also plenty of independent shops and a few independent video rental stores holding the torch for physical media. But it means there is one less place where people can physically own the movies and shows they want to watch.
What you see is what you'll pay. New law bans junk fees on hotel bills and concert tickets and other similar bills. Californians can soon say goodbye to so-called junk fees, those startling charges that appear in a transaction only when the customer is about to hit purchase. You know the ones, a hotel bill that ends with a vague resort fee, or those concert tickets that double in price once it's time to type in your credit card information. Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law Senate Bill 478, which bans offering a price for a good or service that does not include all mandatory fees or charges other than taxes or fees imposed by a government on the transaction, also known as hidden fees or surprise fees. Junk fees obscure the total course of a transaction until it's often too late or too frustrating to back out. The new law, which will go into effect July 1 of next year, won't necessarily make things cheaper. Businesses are allowed to set prices as they wish, but the final total must be disclosed up front. The bill introduced by State Senators Bill Dodd and Nancy Skinner categorized junk fees as a form of bait-and-switch advertising and a deceptive business practice. With the signing of SB 478, California now has the most effective piece of legislation in the nation to tackle this problem. The price Californians see will be the price they pay. California Attorney General Rob Bonta, who has backed the bill since it was introduced early this year, said in a statement, he added that junk fees are bad for consumers and bad for competition. The use of junk fees stifle fair market competition, the bill says. Tacking on charges only at the final point of sales makes it harder for consumers to know the true price of what they're buying, limiting their awareness when comparison shopping for the lowest price. Without knowing the true price of a product or service up front, the process of comparison shopping becomes nearly impossible. This is one of the biggest no-brainer laws I've come across. Let's hope all other states follow suit with the same legislation. Why more business leaders are saying, ditch the four-year degree. The four-year degree was a symbol of prestige, accomplishment, pride, and self-esteem. High school graduates were encouraged to pursue a degree in order to be financially and psychologically secure. But since the pandemic, the tide has been changing. More business leaders are saying a four-year degree is no longer necessary for jobs that can earn top dollar. This goes against a long-held tradition that everybody needs a four-year degree to be socially accepted and financially successful. A report by Accenture, dismissed by degrees, also argues that degree inflation, the rising demand for a four-year college degree for jobs that previously did not require one, is a substantive and widespread phenomenon, making the U.S. labor market more inefficient. The report found more than 60% of employers rejected otherwise qualified candidates in terms of skills or experience simply because they did not have a college diploma. A piece in Vox detailed how the report showed degree bias. First of all, workers without college degrees were just as productive on the job as their college-educated counterparts, and they were less likely to turn over 
and less expensive for companies to hire. Because of degree bias, job speakers are less likely to pursue skilled trade careers as if it was less socially acceptable. A college degree is not necessary to be successful and earn a good salary. The data indicates that skills, rather than degrees, are the top requirements candidates must have to secure a high-paying job today. Whether job candidates are looking for deskless or corporate positions in particular, leaders with skills that can boost engagement in today's workforce are in hot demand. At Zunas, advertised job vacancies in the United States, which tracked 7.6 million in September, points out that jobs are still plentiful compared to the supply of available workers. With 10,000 job openings offering salaries over $200,000 to job seekers. None of these high-paying jobs require a degree. Emerging technology is growing fast, making a degree less valuable than hands-on experience and knowledge. Workplaces are transitioning to recognize skills in the same way they have traditionally understood degrees. Last week, Walmart became the latest company to eliminate the four-year degree requirement for corporate jobs. The company is doing away with college degree requirement for such jobs as cybersecurity and data analytics. We need more companies to follow Walmart's lead. Nearly half of companies reneged on their remote work policies this past year. But the fully in-person work week is almost extinct. According to a new Zip Recruiter survey, fully in-person work has gone just about extinct. Only about 15% of remote capable companies require five days a week of in-office work. That's a response to the pandemic era discovery that flexible work arrangements will reap huge recruitment and retention benefits, Zip Recruiter's chief economist tells Fortune. Why? Mostly because remote and hybrid plans are a tough act to follow when it comes to recruitment and retention. If bosses doubted their effectiveness two years ago, Zip Recruiter wrote, they can't anymore. About 75% of remote-capable companies allow at least two remote days per week. And Zip Recruiter reports that companies attempting to call workers back to their desk despite their desire suffered a heavy cost to their morale and workforce, namely losing top talent. Two days of in-person work gets enough people in the building to justify the investment, as well as to see the impact of collaboration and connection. Zip Recruiter says the problem we find is that many companies aren't yet doing an effective job of ensuring that there is coordination around those days. Many companies have the worst of all worlds. During the pandemic, bosses believe reduced absenteeism was the biggest perk of remote work but now they mainly proponents of how it improves retention, bolsters productivity, and provides access to a broader talent pool. Even so, 43% of companies cut down on their permitted amount of remote work over the past year, which reflect employers' continued unease with the practice. Some still believe it harms companies' culture or dampens productivity, though plenty of research disproved both points. 60% of ZIP recruiters' respondents agreed that remote or hybrid employees perform 
just as well as their in-person counterparts, and 52% of companies said improved productivity is one of remote work's key benefits. Yet many bosses remain rankled that they can't observe or monitor employees from a distance, and some told ZipRecruiter they believe remote work is simply less productive. That doesn't matter much to workers. Remote job listings on ZipRecruiter receive triple the number of applications in-person jobs do. The fact that employers see improved retention and recruitment as the biggest benefit of remote work suggests that some share remote work may turn out to be pro-cyclical. ZipRecruiter wrote, Increasing in economic boom times and decreasing during downturns, when recruitment and retention generally becomes easier due to slacker labor market conditions, and when employers may not value the remote boost as much. Office occupancy rates have hovered around 50% for years now, according to data from Casso Systems, a building security firm that tracks key swipes. That's despite several years of return-to-work mandates in the fall and travel in the summer and during holidays, and it's unlikely to budge above 60% in the foreseeable future. There will be a natural ceiling to it. Castle Systems Executive Chairman told Fortune, we're never really going to get to 100%. While most companies that have demanded an office return don't coordinate in-office days, they do largely monitor individual compliance. That suggests that companies devote more attention to enforcing office requirements than actually making them work for their people and the culture they voice concern about, per the report. No wonder some may insist hybrid doesn't work. By seeking out and rushing to adopt best hybrid work practices, Zip Recruiter writes, employers could stand to retain the recruitment and retention benefits of flexibility while also turning its challenges into opportunities. They also just simply put, going to find out they got happier workers. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get to down to business. This is where I talk about information technology, your workplace, what the company's doing, what it's not doing, the different failures that we have, yes, in business. Okay, maybe that sounds a little negative, but that's what I'm going to talk about. What are the biggest, uh, common, most common IT failures across business today? The the number one item that hurts the most, the data breaches. This is this is going to be in the form of a security breach. This is going to be in the form of all of your client list being released. This is going to be in the form of malware. This is going to be all kinds of different things. And all of these come from a variety of areas, whether it is on the business side and IT having weak cybersecurity measures, it's going to come from employee errors, giving into phishing and things like that. And this is all a, a big, huge problem because it leads to costs for resolving it, but it also leads to fines from various organizations that are regulating business, but also reputational damage. And this is 
can be debilitating and crippling for a company that is not prepared for it. So you have to prepare for this. There are all forms of downtimes and and outages that are going to happen. And we need to, as information technology professionals, we need to be recognizing, and we usually do understand this, but we, we need to be recognizing and explaining this and escalating this on up to management. A hard drive has a finite lifetime. A motherboard has a finite lifetime and the memory that goes into the system and the power systems and everything else, all of that hardware that's around the company, we we know that it's going to die someday and we put it off. But I will tell you that all of this will create a problem. Going with Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And there's all kinds of correlations about how or corollaries, uh, about how it will go wrong at the worst time and in the worst way, costing the most amount of money and destroying the... Yes, Murphy's Law and all of those corollaries really do count in every part of business. So we need to be thinking about that. We need to be recognizing that. And both of those items that I've mentioned already, those highlight a particular area where we are having a problem in IT with planning and communicating. So these are these are IT failures in business. So we've got the data breaches and we've got the downtime, we've got the server failures and all of that. And we can plan for that. We can prepare for that. We can communicate this, but we don't. A poor IT strategy. A lack of planning ahead for the, for Murphy can leave us, the business, vulnerable to the challenges that come ahead, hindering the company's ability to adapt and to grow. So we plan. We need to plan. It's incumbent upon us. I, I'm a planner. I, I plan ahead. I, I miss some of the things. But I know so many in IT do not plan ahead. And I recognize this as a failure across all organizations to plan enough, to prepare enough, to be on our guard enough to prevent these different things. And what that means is it leads into the next item, which is obsolete technology. I worked at a company which had somewhere around, I, I think it was, uh, at that time, it was about 70 workstations. And in the span of three years, we replaced three with new systems. It was constantly these older systems. They were getting worn out. They were ready to die. And yeah, we planned ahead a little bit, but we couldn't plan ahead enough. We planned to protect us in the company from you know, if, if one of these failed or if two of these failed, but we didn't plan ahead. We weren't proactive and said, hey, you know, Johnny brings in the most amount of money for the company, and yet he's got a seven and a half year old computer. Can we replace it? No, it costs too much money. I guarantee you, I replace his computer, he is going to be able to put out an extra quote a day. That's going to bring us in an extra $10,000 for every closed quote. Isn't that worth it? 
Nah, he's just doing fine. He doesn't need anything. Look, any time we are not updating and modernizing our IT systems, it's going to lead to inefficiencies. It's going to lead to increased maintenance costs. And it's going to potentially lead to disaster. The last item on my list about failures in in business and IT, it's a matter of inadequate training in regards to IT systems, in regards to the software, and in regards to all of the different things that can make every user more capable, more productive, more efficient, and really free them from having to call up IT every time I go, I'm having a problem. Did you reboot? I didn't reboot yet. Okay, let me have you reboot. Let me have you. Oh, oh, it's working. Okay, great. That's another 20 minutes out of my day. That's me, of course, (laughs) on the IT side saying that's 20 minutes out of my day. But it happens. Look, we need to be training. We need to be getting modern technology. We need to be planning. We need to be working to eliminate downtime, outages, and, oh, yes, data breaches. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. How employers nudge workers out the door. Organizations can make it difficult for workers to stay by giving them unrealistic deadlines. Employers are often reluctant to fire workers. They need to offer severance packages and risk having the employee accuse the company of discrimination or prejudice for letting them go. It's among the worst, most uncomfortable tasks for a human resource professional or manager. Supervisors may want to avoid conflict with employees, Nudging them to leave of their own volition could be a way for companies to manage their workforce and reduce costs. In behavioral economics, a nudge is a gentle prompt that influences people's behavior. It's referred to how human resources and business leaders can use gentle cues to encourage employees to behave in a specific manner, like investing in their pension, exceeding deadlines, participating in feedback surveys, or pushing a worker out the door. Then there's quiet firing, which is a form of passive-aggressive workplace bullying, in which a company makes an employee's life so difficult that the employee eventually quits. This can be done by giving the employee negative feedback, denying them opportunities for advancement, or making their work meaningless. Organizations can make it difficult for workers to stay by giving them unrealistic deadlines, excessive workloads, or challenging tasks. They may also create a hostile work environment or isolate worker from their colleagues. They might change the terms of employment to make the job less attractive to workers or offer buyouts to workers willing to leave voluntarily. This may include reducing pay, benefits, or job security. An employer might pressure workers to retire early, This may be done by offering financial incentives or making the work environment less attractive to older people. According to the Harvard Business Review, AI can predict which employees will quit. Indicators include setting inconsistent goals or expectations, having too many process constraints, putting people in the wrong roles, assigning tedious or overly easy tasks, and failing to create a psychologically safe culture.
Top-tier investment bank Goldman Sachs allegedly planned to nudge out 800 white-collar professionals early this year by slashing their bonuses, which comprise a large portion of their total compensation after having previously laid off more than 3,000 employees due to the slowdown in mergers and acquisitions, initial public offerings, and the bank's foray into retail consumer financial products. During the height of tech layoffs, Google CEO Sundar Pichai urged his team members to step up their productivity in an all-hands meeting. He advised them the Hallison days of plenty were over. The tech giant and its industry peers found itself in a new hostile environment that caused the sector to aggressively cut costs and find ways to work more efficiently with fewer workers. Before Alphabet, the parent company of Google initiated layoffs, it reportedly launched a ranking system and performance improvement plan. Googler Reviews and Development, with the acronym of GRAD, G-R-A-D, that was suspected to ease out 10,000 employees. There was an overarching worry that employees were rated as poor performers, they could be shown the door. Workers were left with a quandary. Is it better to voluntarily leave or to be let go and have to tell every interviewer in the future that you were laid off from Google and they may draw some negative conclusions from it? When businesses order people to return to the office, it's not just a boomer boss exerting control to micromanage employees and look over their shoulders as they work. The return to work mandate is also a tool to cause attrition. For those who strongly want to remain working remotely, being told to commute several hours round trip to the office and back home is unacceptable. Losing your work-life balance and disrupting the flow of the last three years is an affront to loyal employees. What to do if you feel like you're being nudged out? If you believe you are being nudged out to leave your job, it is essential to document everything. This includes keeping track of any negative feedback you receive, your emails, and conversations with your manager. You can talk to your boss about the situation if you are comfortable. Explain that you feel pressured to leave and would like to stay with the company. If you cannot resolve the situation with your manager, you may want to start looking for a new job. It is important to remember that you have rights as a worker. If you are being nudged to leave your job, you do not have to accept it. You have options, and you should not be afraid to exercise them. Finding a tech job is still a nightmare. Tech companies have laid off more than 400,000 people in the past two years. Competition for the jobs that remain is getting more and more desperate. The past year has brought a reckoning for the once unsinkable industry. Tech companies around the world laid off more than 400,000 workers in 2022 and so far in 2023. According to layoffs.fyi, a site that tracked job losses across the industry. A year after many of those cuts began, job seekers are still facing a tough market, fighting for a smaller number of spots in a job sector that once promised high salaries, lavish perks, and security. The tech job market doesn't show any signs of turning around just yet, says the chief economist with an online employment marketplace, Zip Recruiter. 
After growing at a healthy pace before and during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, the information sector has lost about 2.5% of its jobs over the past year. That's keeping more people at the same jobs for longer and stifling promotion opportunities. There is still demand for tech workers outside of the traditional tech industry, like in government and healthcare, though salaries here are often lower. Big tech companies like Meta, Google, and Amazon have cut tens of thousands of jobs in recent months. Hiring freezes at many firms have followed. Meta recently rehired dozens of the people it laid off beginning last November, a drop in the bucket compared to the 11,000 it let go last fall, and then completed more layoffs in its metaverse-focused Reality Labs division. The layoffs came after historic periods of growth in 2020 as COVID-19 raged. Companies hired more than they could sustain, and workers continued to pay the price. The prolonged downturn in the tech market is breeding anxiety and making people more aggressive in their job searches. In September, men showed up in droves to the Grace Hopper Celebration, an annual conference and career fair targeted towards female and non-binary tech workers who are underrepresented in industry. Videos from the conference show long lines with people running to the job expo as staffers yell to them to slow down. The conference meant to connect and celebrate women in tech exemplified the desperation workers feel as they try to land jobs after completing computer science-related majors. The conference's organizers did not return a request for comment. The layoffs have been particularly stressful for foreign workers in the United States who have been left scrambling for sponsorship to stay in the country after losing jobs. But data shows that many were able to find new jobs after being laid off. And in the tight market, supply of workers is high. Some 780,000 registrations were submitted as of July 31st for this year's H-1B visa applications. The visa used by foreign workers to secure tech jobs in the United States. That's up more than 60% from the year before, leading the United States Citizen and Immigration Services Agency to suggest that some people may have submitted multiple registrations to game the system. There is an annual issuing cap of 85,000 H-1B visas. Younger workers are also having to leap over additional hurdles to get a job. Rachel Sederberg, a senior economist with labor market analytics firm Lightcast, have seen a downward trend in job post-seeking entry-level workers and more skewed towards experienced employees. That has led the median salary for job postings in the United States tech sector to jump from $61,000 a year to $79,000 this year. Companies right-sized, realigned, and readjusted, they started hiring back up, and they're likely hiring for different profiles. Then there's everyone's favorite new toy, ChatGPT. People are using a chatbot or other AI tech to help them write resumes and cover letters, which allows them to apply to more jobs in less time. But that can also give recruiters more noise to sift through. All of these obstacles mean that looking for a job is a full-time job. Kimi Kinishina, a San Diego-based product manager, says her 9-to-5 is spent applying for jobs, and she is even networking afterwards 
or making videos for TikTok to document her process. Kinoshina has been looking for work since July, and while she feels like the process picked up speed in September, she has yet to find a new role. Still, the shift may have brought positive changes to the tech world. People are posting openly about their layoffs on LinkedIn and TikTok and connecting with each other and people employed at desirable companies. With so many people laid off, it's become more acceptable to talk about it. And recruiters were saying half of the candidates that they were interviewing have been laid off, and that stigma has almost been removed. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you're always reviewing a number of different things. What do you have for us this week? Oh, a little backup power solution with a lot less back on it. Now, if okay. you ever tried rack mounting a UPS or in tower mode, finding room for it under a desk without amputating sure. one or both of your legs, right? Yeah. You may appreciate the new series from Eaton that squeezes it all into just a 16-inch depth. Okay. They sent their new wow. 5P1500RC. Now, it's 1500VA, sine wave, UPS, with some other cool features. But that, how, how many U? How, how, uh, how tall is it? This is a 2U. 2U and yeah. 16 inches. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, it's got other for cool the audience features. out there. That's real small. <laughs> yeah, that that's room for your knuckles that you never had before. <laughs> uh, the 16 inch depth is the calling card of this unit. It, it, in a rack, that gives you room to fit your hand behind it to plug in the always unprotected AC stuff, or to assign a plug to the separately controlled Group One or Group Two outlets. It's a line interactive UPS, so it can clean up sloppy AC power input to its outlets without using battery power. On the batteries, it's true sine wave, 120 volt AC at 60 cycles. It's rated full output is 1440 volt amps, meaning 1100 watts. Now, I never like to tap the full capacity of a UPS. If you put yeah, the yeah. full 1100 watts uh, load on this one, you, you you run out of power in about five minutes at, at an outage. <laughs> Boom, run gone. it at half, yeah. Run it at half load. It's like 13 minutes. So uh, I like to run it less than full load. Now this is a pro grade, very respectable UPS. It, it uh, new form factor. That 16 inch form factor solves a lot of physical placement, geometry, and clearance issues. And 1500 VA means you have a very few minutes for a high power workstation PC to get everything yeah. saved before. Yeah. Everything goes dark. It's about eight hundred and fifty dollars on Amazon. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the the size of the old ones. That's a, a probably about a, two to three inches shorter. Oh, more than that. Well, some of those old ones, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were they were four and six U in size for, for that kind of output. Oh, so yeah, for the height. They're, yeah. they're changing out the batteries. I'm sure the the battery technology has shifted quite yeah. a bit. Now, talk about shifting. Let's go to the dashboard. Uh, yes. From Tom Wiki Tech. That's T O M W I K I hyphen T E C H. The okay. calling card for the Apps to Car, A P P S to C A R, Apps to Car wireless car charger mount is fast Qi, Q I, Qi, 15 watt charging with a car accessory socket, meaning that's the lighter plug. It does uh, QC3 
uh, in its charging adapter. It has a USB-C cable and the mount itself. The mount has an adjustable foot cradle. The foot helps align the charging coils in your phone and a 10-inch long flexible stem, almost a gooseneck action, okay. with a suction cup mount at one end for windshield or dash mounting and a ball to hold its cradle on the other mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. Plus, a stick-on stabilizer yoke into which you place that stem near the cradle end to help everything obey the law of physics. The app's uh, Takara 15-watt wireless charger phone mount H9W is about 33 bucks online. Okay. And in case you need to debug other parts of your life, yes. I also got, now I'm not going to show you, nobody look. I'm not going to show you the uh, actual okay. bottle of what I'm talking about now, but the brand is Zevo. It's from Procter & Gamble, Z-E-V-O. Now, are the mosquitoes and ticks still out there at your house? Zevo yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. It's an on-body insect repellent product. There are three varieties. They're odorless, non-sticky. They offer eight hours of flea and tick repellent. Instructions say to keep far away from your eyes and don't let it contact leather or synthetic fabrics. Uh, the first you're less likely to wear outdoors. The second, almost unavoidable, so be careful. Uh, <laughs> it comes in three delivery choices, pump spray, aerosol spray, or lotion at many major retailers and online. Suggested price is about 10 bucks each, and it works well enough to be worth it. Hmm. Okay. It, it, it's it, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, we, um, we've been struggling here with mosquitoes a lot this year. And, uh, yeah, I have no idea when it's going to end. We'll be Thanksgiving. They'll be, they'll be biting at the turkey. Yeah, they will indeed. I'm, I'm sorry about that background. It sounded like the starship that uh, passed by at low altitude. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got about a minute and a half left. Did you have another item for us? Uh, only to mention, uh, you'll be hearing from me again on Zevo, and they try to be using fewer poisons and more organics in their products. Okay. Uh, they do have a killer for all kinds of creepy pests, and I'll get into that uh, oh in a few weeks. Uh, I did also want to mention that the subject of phone mounts for the car is one I've been exploring in some depth. I think I've had six of them through here. So uh, I think that's six of them in the last uh, last six months. So we've been talking about this for for a long time. Yeah, they and they they even come for the fold phones now in a horizontal format. Yeah, yeah. So it's all getting it's all getting interesting, and the new stuff has gone from ten to fifteen, and soon higher wattage through that magnetic chi charger. I'm liking it. Yeah, yeah. So you like the stability of this one? It, I mean, you you ha you've had some some doozies there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, uh, this one, because of that mount on it, I do like. I'm not in love with its suction cup. It's probably better for a windshield than a dashboard. But I, that's yeah. that's on your car. I have a Subaru, and it's a little bit pebbled, so you have to do stuff to make sure it goes and sticks. <laughs> <laughs> that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, October the 26th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Zoom, 
Website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, November the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, November the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, November the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, November the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Address is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.